Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. It's that time of year again. The planets have aligned, the chasm has opened, and Tales to Terrify is once again accepting submissions. We're on the hunt for the darkest, deadliest, most nightmare-inducing fiction you can birth from your twisted brain, under 10,000 words, that is. We've got a fresh and hungry host of readers waiting to receive your creepy creations, so best not disappoint. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions has everything you need to know about what we're looking for, what we're not, and how to submit. To kick us off this round, we're especially interested in tales of otherworldly terror from the dark depths of outer space. The junction between horror and sci-fi is one of my favorite places to dwell. So I challenge you, children of the night, do your worst. Also, this coming week we hit a bit of a milestone. For those of you who've been listening for a while, you know Tales to Terrify was originally born within a network of podcasts known as the District of Wonders. Well, four years ago, we undocked from the mothership and decided to set off into the dark depths of the unknown on our own. It feels both like yesterday 
and a lifetime ago. I can't thank you all enough for your support, children of the night. We've evolved and grown and changed a lot since then. Even more so from our early days under the welcoming yet haunting deep tones of our founding host, Larry Santoro. None of this would be possible without the incredible support of you, our listeners. Not only those who support us on Patreon and through PayPal, but all of those who bend your ears to our sinister stories each and every week. This journey has been a labor of love and terror for everyone involved. We've grown from a small, ragtag group of volunteers to a growing, dedicated staff, an amazing cadre of slush readers, and a full roster of paid authors and narrators. It's been an absolute pleasure to have been at the helm for these last four years, guiding your mind into and back out of the abyss each week. Here's to many more weeks and terrifying tales yet to come. Speaking of which, I suspect that's what you're here for tonight, isn't it? Well, I'd hate to disappoint. So, let's get to it. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes from Gordon B. White. Gordon B. White is the author of the weird horror collection As Summer's Mask Slips and Other Disruptions, as well as the novellas Rookfield and And In Her Smile the World with Rebecca J. Allred. A graduate of Clarion West, Gordon's stories have appeared in dozens of venues, including the best horror of the year, and he regularly contributes interviews and reviews to various horror outlets. You can find him online at gordonbwhite.com or on Twitter at Gordon B. White. Children of the Night, join me for Gordon B. White, The Lure of the Lollipop Tree, first published in his anthology as Summer's Mask Slips and Other Disruptions, 2020. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
Jim knows he's done a bad thing, but still he bursts into the bedroom positively glowing, and before Lori can finish asking where he's been, he's talking over her, burying her beneath words and gestures. It's imperative, he feels, to get this out. I was out walking, he says. Longer than usual, yes, but it's only... Oh, I had no idea. See, I was over past the park on the street I'd never been on before, and Lori, there was this house and... Oh, it was perfect. Jim settles down on the edge of the bed, crushing the mattress and pinning Lori beneath the blankets. Despite the outside world's recent brief stab at springtime, a chill has returned. Not that this place, he barely breathes, I mean, our place isn't all so wonderful, but that house was a real house house, you know? It was like the ones you draw as a kid when you're supposed to make a picture of your family, square body, two stories, a triangle roof, even a little tree outside with its leaves trimmed in a perfect circle. Like a lollipop, he sighs in an extended deflation. He finally looks at Lori. Your eyes are red. She rubs at her lashes. Just allergies. The weather, sure, Jim says. But this house, Lori, and inside it was just so cozy. You went inside? Jim's face burns in response. No, no, no. Lori fights out from beneath the sweltering covers. Not again. It's not like that. Jim reaches out, but she shrinks towards the bed's far side. I won't. I, I can't keep apologizing. Despite her retreat, a desire is unfurled within him. He had practically run home, eager to do more than talk, and since Lori cannot withdraw any further without falling, Jim slides across. He picks up her hand and kisses it. I'm, I'm sorry, he says. For everything, I love you. I'm exhausted, Lori pushes against Jim's chest, but he doesn't move. Please, Jim whimpers, the burn inside him curling over on itself, trying a different tactic as he plants his head against Lori's chest. Above him, she sniffles, and Jim can hear an emptiness that rattles beneath her skin. He wants to fill it. I mean, you're happy here, but... He trails off. Don't you still love me? She pauses, but not long enough to cool him down. Okay, Lori says. She lies back and closes her tired eyes. After they finish and Lori rolls her back to him for the night, Jim wanders the strange house they keep. His footsteps and fingertips leave faint glittered traces across the naked floors and bare eggshell walls. Even with only the sparse furniture they'd hauled across the country, this place is too constricting. Life here is only a television room, a kitchen, a bedroom, a bathroom, and a half, and the spare room that Lori insisted they make into an office. Where is there to grow or run wild? In the morning, Lori will rise and fold herself into her starched attire that it feels like Jim only ever sees from behind. She'll drive to her new office in this new city, her absence, a tangible presence for twelve hours, until she comes home and her presence becomes an absence, immediately pajama-clad, but still answering work emails. Since he's still jobless, by day Jim will clean, cook, and keep the house that Lori wants. He will bear the chafe of domestication as penance for what he did and why Lori had insisted they either uproot together or split apart. He had agreed to the move because that dissolution would have been one failure too many. Yet as Jim stares at their sterile decor, he can't help but think about that other house. 
What he didn't tell Lori was that the perfect house wasn't just one that a child might draw, but the one that he had drawn. That crayon lines came to life before him, and it wasn't just the perfect representation of a house, but the house where he had always known that he would grow a family. His parents, his teachers, his instincts had told him so. This desire had been secretly growing in the cracks between what Jim wants and what he has, but after seeing that perfect house tonight, his nesting instinct is in full bloom. It makes these walls Lori has pressed him between squeeze even tighter. He also hadn't told her, even though she'd known, but he'd gone inside. Unlike Lori's house, the perfect house had been as warm and still as a breath held between clasped hands. It was like a pitcher that his recollections filled until he was sinking in them. The carpet's deep fingers held the not unpleasant must of solid wood furniture. In the living room, he had glimpsed the heavy coffee table and pilled couch reposed before the boxy cathode ray television. He didn't even need to look to know that above the fireplace hung that final family portrait of five-year-old Jim, sandwiched between both parents, smiling for posterity. The landing was just as he imagined remembering it, down to the side table's blue vase, pinching pink orchids in the violet runners up the stairs to the second floor. How could he convey to Lori that poetry of space that even now is breaking apart and resetting his bones? How he feels the traditional masculine drive to procreate and to provide growing like a tree inside of him. If he tried to tell Lori, she would think he was blaming her again. Moreover, Jim could never tell her about the shape he'd seen in the upstairs bedroom window. He could never tell Lori what he had done inside and what he'd brought back. Lori's dry heaves interrupt Jim's dreams of backyards swallowed by kudzu. Showers steam curls into the hall as Jim approaches the wedge of light spilling from the bathroom. Her retching grows softer, wearier, as he opens the door. Lori, pitched over the toilet, clutches a beige towel like a cocoon she isn't ready to shed, even as her wet flesh tries to convulse free. Another tremor rises, but she swallows it, eyes pink from the strain. Are you sick? Jim asks. Food poisoning. Uneasy steps take her to the sink in the fogged-over mirror. I thought we ate the same things. It's too early, of course, but Jim still tries to divine any changes beneath her terry sheath. Do you think you're... you know? Lori's hand cuts through the condensation on the mirror, exposing Jim where he looms behind her like a rumpled ghost. No, Lori says to their reflections. Humidity kisses the mirror's silver back into fog rendering husband and wife as dim portraits, then shadows, then nothing. Jim watches Lori closely because he knows her every day is a busy day, daisy-chaining into a busy week, a busy month, and a busy forever. Because he knows she can never be too sick for work, he watches as she rearranges things to be too sick for home and schedules around her lingering morning discomfort. Even as it drags into the second week, she insists it's a bug and turns in for bed so early that the lights are off before Jim embarks on his evening constitutionals. Jim spends every evening failing to find the perfect house again. The world, briefly in bloom during that strawberry spring, has closed back up like a tight little blossom. But the wandering lets Jim's memory return again and again to his favorite room in the perfect house. 
It was a nursery, with petal-yellow walls and an empty crib guarded by a limp mobile of purple blossoms among fat and fuzzy bees. A mural of vines crept up from the baseboard, green fingers reaching like beanstalks towards the stick-on stars that glowed on the ceiling. Even though Jim had never seen a room like that, he felt like he had been raised there. Even now, it consumes his thoughts as the perfect place for offspring. After Lori's illness began, Jim had managed to leave her alone for two whole weeks. But after one particularly late jaunt, during which the return of the frigid air had shaken his faith in the bargain he thought he'd made, he can no longer resist checking. That night, as Jim slips into bed beside Lori, he clenches his hand into fists over and over. When circulation returns and they are warm, almost hot, Jim slides them up under Lori's nightshirt, pressing between her hips, just below her belly button. He tries to feel the seed growing. There, a little lump just like a peach pit. Soon, its roots will be so deep that Lori can no longer pretend it isn't there. She'll have to slow down, maybe even quit her job, and Jim can reassume his place as breadwinner and reclaim the respect that he deserves. Things will be as they should. Jim will procreate and Jim will provide. The vision is already sprouting in his mind. Jim is a film running at too many frames per second. Finally, having found a purpose, he sheds the malingering and sulking that had defined his life in Lori's house. Now, while Lori is off camera, the sun races the sky and fast forward in Jim scurries like a carpenter ant from garage to home improvement store to spare room and back, as if following a pheromone trail. When Lori returns, the film speed resets, and they eat dinner in an exhausted and almost comfortable silence. She goes to bed, and worn to contentment, Jim joins her without his nightly ramble. The next day, they repeat, without complaint. Then, one day, Jim shuts the door to the spare room, and he's glowing again. That night at dinner, he asks leading questions intended to goad Lori into her former office. Do we have a stapler? Jim asks. Where do you suppose our tax documents are? Finally, when was the last time you used the office? But Lori does not rise to take the bait. I'm exhausted, she says. You're home all day. Can't you handle things on your own? Jim hunches over a pad of paper, working out the next problem beneath a flurry of pencil sketches. With the first step finished, Jim's hands and brain itch. And so the graphite streaks fall like rain as he layers up concept after concept. He's so absorbed by his ferocious drawing that he doesn't notice Lori enter, and when she finally speaks, he jumps. What are you doing? she asks. He sprawls across the drawings like a boy hiding dirty pictures, but then a grin blooms. Jim spreads his arms to reveal two houses, unalike in form or composition. On one page is the childishly simple reference drawing of his perfect house, organically symmetrical in unwavering lines. The square body wears a pointed roof like a party hat. Four cross-hatched windows at two per level stare out like insect eyes around the mouth of the door. A single lollipop tree rises as enticement from the empty yard. There is no depth or perspective. It's just the symbol that has wormed its way into Jim. On the other page is their current single-story house, unmade and remade in half a dozen skeletal variations, striving towards the ideal. Here, a dozen posts sprout like legs to raise it up another story. There, its top has exploded and new beams like fingers grasp toward the sky. The house is squashed, stretched, 
cut apart or aggregated with others, all of the hash marks striving to make the domestic one into the alien other. At the bottom of the page stands two little figures. One is a stick figure man, limbs as thin as a pen line. The other has a sharp triangle of a skirt indicating a woman, but her belly is as round as the lollipop tree. Ah, is all Laurie musters. It'll make sense when it's done, Jim says and returns to scratching away. Laurie's hand flutters like a leaf down to Jim's shoulder. I need you to come to the doctor with me, please. Jim grunts, still drawing. I'm fine. It's about me. Jim puts his pencil down. He smiles. Of course, darling, that's what responsible husbands do. Rising, Jim takes Lori in his arms, and she plants her face in surrender against his shoulder. Her breathing permeates his shirt until his desire swell again like moss in a drizzle. Let me show you what else they can do, he whispers. Jim steers Lori down the hall to the spare room she still thinks is her office. With a flourish, he opens a door and reveals yellow walls, painted plants, a crib's empty cage, and pale press-on stars that glimmer from the ceiling. Oh, Jim, she whispers. I knew you'd love it. He beams and turns to search her face for his good work's reward. Oh, Jim, she whispers again and closes her eyes tight against his hungry gaze. The expanse of Lori's belly glistens like the flesh of a rare tropical fruit as the technician runs an ultrasound wand over the gel. Gradually, the static of the screen coalesces, and all three of them, Lori, Jim, the tech, try to interpret the signs. Jim and Lori haven't spoken since he unveiled the nursery. Last night, she slept hanging off the bed as if even an accidental touch could kill her. In the chill of the examination room, however, she clings to him as they wait for the tech to tell them what the ultrasound's pen and ink grain reveals. A fetus at this stage, the tech says, holding her fingers a pinch apart, would be about yay big, size of a bean maybe. The tech points to the screen. This isn't right. Lori squeezes Jim's knuckles hard enough to pop them. W what is it then? The tech hems and haws. I should get the doctor if that's all right. We do that in, she pauses, special cases. Lori nods with the resignation of someone whose consent is a formality. The tech glances once more at Lori's chart. And you haven't been on any medication other than, she flips back, anxiety and allergies? It's been a rough year, Lori says. Of course, the tech excuses herself from the room. Jim creeps an arm around Lori's shoulder, and she sinks beneath the pressure. He kisses her forehead and follows her line of sight out of the window, to where the thin branches hold a few bitter leaves that had been coaxed out by the intemperate midwinter spring, then left to freeze. What's happening? Lori mutters. Whispering hushabies, Jim pulls her closer. He doesn't tell her, but on the ultrasound screen... In the smears and wash that Lori and the tech couldn't decipher, Jim can see it staring right at them, four eyes like windows, lips pursed like a door, a crown like a peaky little roof. The light in the upstairs window even winks at him. Jim never told Lori that the golden glow behind the gauze curtain in the perfect house's upstairs window had drawn him like a moth. He never told her how a swaying silhouette had danced out from the depth of the well-lit yet hidden room. How it beckoned to him. 
There was a perfume on the air that night, just a subtle hint of those early blooming plants teased out by the unseasonable warmth. After a long winter, alone in Lori's house, Jim hadn't been feeling himself. He'd been cooped up, confined, until only these brief walking furloughs from his prison could keep him from lashing out. That pent-up energy was the only reason, really, that he'd entered, the only reason he'd behave the way he did inside. Honeyed light had oozed from the slit along the front door's jam. It spread like eager lips beneath his bold push, and inside the house smelled like hardwood spice and the leaves of yellowed books. At first, slowly, as if sunk in resin but pressing onwards, Jim gave himself an abbreviated tour of the living room, the dining room, the kitchen. He paused for a great long while in the nursery, letting it fill him with the desire to fill it in turn. He wasn't thinking clearly. The neurons in his head were sparkling like gold dust. They weren't Jim's feet that were drawn up the stairs, down the darkened hall, and past closed doors towards the illumination beyond. They weren't Jim's hands that opened the door to the well-lit room that had lured him inside. As vivid as the rest of the house remains, the woman in the bedroom is hazy. Jim remembers how she had seemed to float before the window, how the lamp's glow had cast her skin in an almost lavender hue and drawn out a shadow that stretched to the ceiling. How her eyes seemed dark, her pursed lips rose red, and how he tried to circle her naked body, but the misfiring, hormonal overload of his scattered memories can only recall how she shivered like a paper doll, almost insubstantial from the wrong angle. Jim didn't tell Lori any of this, because it wasn't him, really. The Jim who had hung his head and followed Lori across the country would never have run his fingers over a stranger's petal-soft skin. He would never have peeled off his clothes and put that stranger down onto the lily-white expanse of the master bed. He would have never done that again. It had been a different Jim in that house. But oh, the things that Jim did within her soft folds. Jim's cell phone flashes, Lori as it beeps in his car passenger seat and pulls his attention away from the streets that he's been cruising. He reaches over to answer and puts it on speaker. Hey, sweetie, he says, eyes going back to the passing houses. How's the business trip? There is a pregnant pause before she answers. It wasn't business, Jim. What? He looks over to where her voice sits beside him like a ghost, but finds only his reflection in passenger's window. You lied to me? No, Jim. I told you everything, Lori says, briefly heated but chilling quickly. You just only ever want to hear what you want. A sigh rolls across the waves that bring her distant voice to him. Anyway, it's done now, and I'm okay. Jim swallows the lump in his throat. What's done? The procedure. Fiona is here with me, and I'll be discharged tomorrow. I've already missed too much work, but I think, I think, she echoes and fades. Suddenly, her sister's voice breaks through. You need to be gone, Jim. Lori needs space after the way you ruined. There's a scuffle, and then Lori is back. Sorry, but yes, I, I need some time. Ruined? Jim asks. What about the baby? Another pause. You know it wasn't a baby. His lips curl towards screaming, but Jim steadies himself. The fetus, then, he says. It wasn't a fetus. Realization stakes Jim through the gut. Was it? He drops his voice to a whisper, barely containing the nervous energy. 
It was a seed, wasn't it? It was a tumor, Jim. The static of a bad connection ebbs like a black tide between them. Jim? Lori's voice is gentle, if not calm. These thoughts you've been having, they aren't real. You know that, right? What do you mean? He realizes that he hasn't been paying proper attention. He might have missed the house. The spare room? The procedure? Us? You, you can't blame me for wanting a family, Lori. I don't, she says. But right now? Your career, I know. There's more to it. I can't keep apologizing, Jim snaps. Maybe if you had, or I hadn't, if we had... He pulls over and puts the car in a park. I'm sorry. He stabs his finger at the empty seat. But I moved all the way across the country for that. For you, why isn't that enough? It's not about being enough, Lori says. Won't you please let me help you? Jim laughs. It isn't supposed to be like that. It's okay. Really, I can keep... I don't need help, Lori. The line is quiet. Okay, she says. Okay, he says. For half a minute, they just breathe at one another until Jim clears his throat. The... He can't call it what she thinks it is. The thing from inside you. Bring it home, please. I want to see it. Jim had thrown himself into that strange woman in the perfect house that night. Everything he'd done to spoil Lori's trust, back before she found out and made them move. He did it again, and again, growing fuzzier and more frenzied in his lust, pawing and grunting until finally his brain exploded with a sunburst of ecstasy, and he collapsed across the damp white and lavender bedclothes. He lolled there, spent but not quite asleep in the humid air. After a few minutes of dazed afterglow, Jim reached for the woman, but found himself alone in the bed. Disoriented, he rose and began to dress, but paused when he caught the flecks of gold glittering in his chest and leg hairs. Brushing and plucking at the sparkles only seemed to bury them deeper, but he briefly thought of a shower. But then the first heavy footfall echoed in the hallway outside the door. Jim scrabbled into his clothes as the weary footsteps plodded towards the room. He was just fixing his belt, and only then realizing how disheveled the bed linens were and how the cloying smell of sex and perfume still hung in the air when the door opened and a stranger entered. The man was about Jim's age, maybe a little older. He wore a light jacket, and his cheeks were still pink from the air outside. Without speaking, he took in the scene and then raised his hand to his cheek slowly, as if weighed down by the heavy gold ring on his finger. He rubbed a stubble on his jaw, and even in the dim light, his knuckles were obviously darkened and split. I'm sorry, Jim sputtered. I didn't... Don't apologize. The stranger waved Jim off. He unzipped his jacket and he walked to the far window overlooking the street. Your wife, though, Jim tried to continue. Silhouetted in the window frame, the man chuckled. I'm just a visitor like you. What? Jim asked. We're the same, the man said. Curiosity held Jim. How so? The man turned back to Jim and sighed. He shrugged off his jacket and let it fall to the floor, then began to unbutton his shirt. He spoke as he stripped. You and I, we're not happy boys. We're trapped in jobs, lives, marriages. The now shirtless man pointed to his ring and then towards Jim's own wedding band. That pin us and squeeze us. We suffer in silence, always the good guys, but... 
That isn't what men like us are supposed to do, is it? Men sacrifice. They build things. Yes. I, I mean, no. Jim paused at the edge of the bedroom door. The stranger wasn't exactly threatening, but as the man dug one shoe off with his toes and then the other, the air grew thicker. Something drew you to this house, right? And when you found it, you found her too, right? The man undid his belt, and with a single thrust, shucked pants and underwear to the floor. You came upstairs and you did something bad, didn't you? Yes, Jim whispered, equally mortified and riveted. Men build, or men destroy. We proliferate, and it consumes us, right? The naked stranger stretched his arms and then rubbed his bloated stomach. So maybe what we did wasn't bad. Maybe it was natural. That's how things work, procreate and provide. When the drives are thwarted, they have to come out somewhere, right? It's just basic survival. Jim nodded. It was as if this naked man could see into his soul. I liked it, Jim said. I felt like the me I wanted to be again. The naked man moved towards Jim, the flab around his midsection and his flaccid penis jiggling with each step. He reached out with his bruised hands, and Jim couldn't move. She gave you something, too. You've got it on you now, in you. The man brushed the side of Jim's hair with surprising tenderness. A few specks of gold fell like dandruff to his shirt. You're going to take it home, to share it with a little lady so that she'll appreciate you and remember how things should be, right? Grinning, the man leaned in close enough that Jim could smell his breath like moldy peaches. So you can be the man of the house again, right? With a burst of anger, Jim shoved the man. The stranger stumbled backwards before catching himself, and Jim braced for an attack. But the man just laughed, thin and wheezing. Then he wiped his eyes and turned away. I told you we're the same, he said as he waved Jim away and then began to caress the wall. Finding a loose edge in the wallpaper, he gingerly peeled the strip of it from the far corner and then smiled as he pressed a finger against the exposed surface. Jim was going to say something else to challenge the man, but the stranger pulled back his fingers, glistening with a thick and translucent substance, and his nostrils whistled as he inhaled deeply. Jim turned and fled the grotesque display. By the time he was outside and sparkling faintly beneath the streetlights, however, the encounter was already fading like a bad dream. He had to get home. It was imperative. Once Lori hangs up after telling Jim about the procedure, he could stop the car and find somewhere to wait until his mind cleared. He could turn around and go home to prepare an apology or start dismantling the nursery. Instead, he drives in circles while a single mantra runs its circuit through his wires. Men build or men destroy. Eventually, he finds the house. But it isn't what he remembered. Instead of the nice suburban cul-de-sac that he dimly recalled, it squats in a mangy lot near an unkempt tree break. For a moment, he entertains the hope that he's mistaken, that it's like seeing a friend at a distance and rushing up only to find a stranger. But there's no mistaking those windows. Although now cataract with grime, that's the same peaked roof that now sags like a battered hat. The front door had drawn him in like puckered lips now gops, its steps drooping to the brittle lawn, the little lollipop tree's bare branches shiver like bones. Jim enters, no longer buoyed, along by the heady scent of an ill-timed spring. Everything inside is now either withered and dry or bloated and soft. The kitchen, the living room, the dining room are all in disarray. 
Settling timbers groan amid the echoes of dripping water. Jim can't bring himself to enter the nursery, but a crack in the wilted door reveals that the daffodil walls are now jaundiced. Like an ultrasound, gray water damage and fuzzy constellations of black mold blot out the murals in a static that Jim can't quite penetrate, although he senses movement behind the grit. The dry, dusty smell he remembered is smothered beneath a floral decay. Gagging in the spore-filled air, Jim's every step up the stairs threatens to press through this false world's soft flesh. The second-floor hallway sags like the inside of an intestine, and the carpet squelches as cool water seeps up through the soles and soaks the socks. Doors that had been closed before now peeling away like scabs, revealing as false fronts covering the rot. The only real door is the one that hangs like a muddled tongue at the hall's end. Jim has nowhere left to go but into the mouth of it. Inside the master bedroom, the floor and ceiling dip. Strips of wallpaper curl away like ferns to expose globs of paste like thick tears, as if the walls are mourning the tattered violet mass at the bed-stained center. The bedside lamp flickers like a dying butterfly, and in the erratic illumination Jim can see that the purple lump on the bed, the lure that Jim had fallen upon in delusional and ultimately insatiable lust, had always been a trick. He spreads the flesh-heavy cloak into the outline of the woman he thought he had seen, finally comprehending the two-dimensional curves and the flat markings that, in the dimness, he had mistaken for a face. From its back, a thick, limp stem like an umbilicus connected to the wall. It's dying, Jim knows. His perfect home is a lie, like an exotic orchid. Some trick of the climate had coaxed it into bloom so that starving and desperate to propagate it had called to him. Its time is up, though, and it no more belongs here now than Jim does. He should go back home. He knows. Back to apologize for the damage he's done to Lori and their life together. But even if Lori could ever forgive him, Jim couldn't admit to her, to anyone, that he had been fooled again. He won't make himself a laughingstock or let her see him as any less of a man than he already is. Destruction flashes across his mind. The wooden bones of this place in flames, the seed of the nursery in Lori's house gutted to the timbers. But even in its degraded state, this house still had its tendrils in him. Even though Jim had failed to spread it, he can't give up on the whole structure and wipe it away, can he? An enormous sadness settles on him. Procreate and provide. The twin objectives that biology and society have conditioned Jim to pursue at all costs. A failure. At the former, couldn't he still fulfill the latter? Behind the curling wallpaper, Jim sees the outlines of others that must have been like him. Beneath the enticing dewdrops, where golden moats and black flies stick fast, are greasy shadows of other men who have given themselves to its walls. One mass is still distinguishable as the naked stranger, although what remains of his skin and organs is now translucent, as everything but his gold ring is being digested into the boards. Had they, the stranger, Jim, all of them, come back here after failing to thrive or spread only to find their ideal home dying? Unable to accept their failure, had they traded themselves to preserve its rotting body? Just a little longer in the vain hope that it might one day take root again. Jim shivers as he strips his clothes off and discards them in a pile on the floor. For a brief moment, a sharp tinge of mint prickles his nose. But then the droplets stick fast and hold Jim upright as he leans against the wall. It's like falling without moving. 
and all he feels is a warm numbness seeping through his body. But isn't this what men did? Hadn't someone told him once that men make sacrifices? They build things. Yes, they do. Jim thinks as he finally slips down even if they're ugly and imperfect, even if they don't completely understand the imperative. That was Gordon B. White, The Lure of the Lollipop Tree, as read by Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick is the former host of Tales to Terrify. He works now supporting assistive technologies for special education students, and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. Great to hear from you again, Stephen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we stoke the hellfires with more Tales to Terrify. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.